0: back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lama-Troc, and Ina Coriel. That's why I get the name. Those are my pin names. Most of my writing has been done by Gabrielle Lawson, and Ina Coriel really only writes Lord of the Rings, or wrote Lord of the Rings. She hasn't written anything in several years, which is kind of sad, but you know, stories in, stories out, and those movies... Um, well, they were quite a few years ago, and I read the book the books <laughs> quite a few years ago as well. So well, maybe someday I'll do a rewatch or reread, and something'll spark, and Ina Quariel will write again. It's an elvish name anyway, you know, so she's supposed to be immortal, right? Philippe has written don't remember exactly the number, but he's uh, he would be in second place. Um, Gabrielle Lawson was the first and wrote most of you know everything well before Ina Coriel. Ina, Cor- was, Ina Coriel actually came second. Philippe was after that. Um, I've told that story many times here. And the story that started Philippe started in 2004. So now Philippe gets to write the sequel to that story and video game stories. However, there is one video game story that is written by both of us and I say that with air quotes. What I'm gonna do in this episode is just finish out my short stories. I said in my last episode that there were only a few left. In fact, there are four. Now, I'm not going to read one of them, because it is a sequel to somebody else's short story, and I still hope to get her on here and have her read that. We can read those together. But that does leave exactly three short stories that I can read. Two of them are Deep Space Nine, and one of them is Zombies Run. What is Zombies Run, you may ask. (laughs) If you've heard about it, great. Great. Hello, Runner 5. Zombies Run, I'm going to plug. I don't get paid for it. They didn't ask me to. I just love it. Okay? Zombies Run is a fitness app. I actually find exercise to be rather boring, and that's one of the reasons I generally didn't do it before. I am... not happy with my weight right now so I'm glad I'm getting back to it I have been doing it all I lost quite a bit of weight a while back I got all the way from 140 pounds to 115 and zombies run was a big part of that the pandemic is what has in no it's been a contributing factor to gaining weight again till I'm right about where I started and I'm not liking that but now the weather has turned. It's not cold. The time zones, or time change has happened. I needed that so that I could, you know, go walking after work because before it would be dark. Now it's not dark. I have some time that I can go, and it's not too cold to go. So, it hopefully will start to bear fruit. So, why Zombies Run? Zombies Run is a story that you star in. It's written by Naomi Alderman. There's a team of writers now. We're about to start the ninth season. But it started with Naomi Alderman, and she is an award-winning novelist. And then you have the guys who wrote the app and the guys who direct the actors. The actors, you can look them them up on IMDb. They are British actors that are in British series and such. But... They record audio for Zombies Run as well. And the sound effects are just great. You start with the first mission, which is Jolly Alpha Niner, I believe. And you start in a helicopter. And you can hear the helicopter blades. And your helicopter gets shot down. And you hear that. (laughs) You know, it it is all very real sounding. You get these clips of story that play every so often, and in between, you have your own music. You can use their in-app player, or you can use your own player. I use a player called Pulse. Um, people use Spotify and everything, but I like to control my playlists so I know exactly which songs are coming. And the idea is that you run, walk, or jog as you go through this story. So it gets you moving. And it's so much more fun because I want to know what's going to happen next with Runner 5. See, you are Runner 5. And so there are Runner 5s all over the world who are part of this story. And the neat thing about the writing is that never in any episode does it ever mention a gender for Runner 5 that is tricky to pull off but they manage it that means men women trans people anybody non-binary yeah you can do it you can be runner five there's no he she any of that it's just runner five so it fits everybody in my head canon, Runner 5 is me, but a little bit bolder, a little bit stronger, definitely more heroic. <laughs> you know, I'm a homebody. <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, I'm not a. I'm not a hero. Runner 5 is a hero. And Runner 5 goes through some stuff. It's, you know, it, it's astounding. Um, you get to know the other characters in the story and you start to care about them it's like being in an old radio show that they used to have in the 30s and 40s but you are the star and it's incredible there are eight seasons in that are already in the bag some of them have 20 30 missions one of them had nearly 60 by the time they was done there's virtual runs that used to be twice a year that I think they're going to do three times a year. I'm so looking forward to the Jack and Eugene World Tour virtual run that's supposed to start at the end of the month. Jack and Eugene are the DJs for Abel Township in the first two seasons. I am so looking forward to that. And I am looking forward to the return of season nine. It was delayed because of the pandemic, as so much was delayed. But season nine is going to start April fourteenth, and I cannot wait. What they did during the pandemic is interesting too, because they put out these um, they put out these missions called the home front. So there's a whole separate story. Instead of a pandemic of coronavirus, they have a horde of ten thousand zombies. So all these runners are stuck in various places, and you can't get out of Able Township. And Runner Five is actually stuck in a mall. Um, so this horde keeps you from going anywhere. So they give you exercises to do at home with your playlist. So instead of running, maybe you're doing wall sits or planks or, um, weights, uh, curls with weights or punching jabs and hooks and, um, various things, jumping jacks even. So lots of variety with that. And there's, I think, 30-some-odd missions of that. I am not even all the way through it. And on top of that, they have the new adventures. So they'll take some of those favorite, same actors, make different characters, and tell different stories. From Little Red Riding Hood, to Nellie Bly, to Ancient Romans, to Dystopian Futures, to a place where you can still find dinosaurs. And there's just so many different stories that you can play. It's just chalk. This app is just chock full of different stories you can play while you go out there, run jog, or walk, run, jog, or walk, or do exercises at home. It's fantastic, and it makes me want to go out there. When I used to go to the gym, it would make me want to go and get on that treadmill and walk that four miles an hour walk that I do and just get through it and just see what's the next story. You know, what's the next episode, the next mission. It is exciting. I love it. So there's my plug for zombies run. If you need um, motivation to get out there and exercise and you don't mind a good zombie story. I mean, I know that logically zombies can exist, I know that, but I like The Walking Dead, too. <laughs> so <laughs> It's just fun, and it's a fun story, and it's, it, it really pulls you in. It, 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 it's just wonderful. It's traumatic at times because you care about those characters. Now, I did write one story for Zombies Run, and that's the first one I'm going to read. It's called I'm a Monster, so I have to set the stage now I want to let you know that there are spoiler warnings here. If you're new to Zombies Run and you haven't run Season 3, Missions 44 through 48, you want to skip ahead. Um, yeah, <laughs> this will definitely spoil it. Okay, spoiler warning starts now. I'll give you 10 seconds of silence to skip ahead. Okay in season 1 you're introduced to Able Township you become a member of Able Township a member of the runners of Able Township runner number 5 in fact now all of the other runners generally have names but runner 5 doesn't ever give their name they're always they're always called runner number runner 5 and runner 5 is notoriously mute on missions you do hear Some of the people say that, you know, Runner 5 said something else before. So I'm thinking Runner 5 does speak just notoriously tight-lipped on missions. They can't have Runner 5 speak during those clips because you are Runner 5. And again, if they had an actor, that would put a gender on it. That would drop a whole bunch of people from believing they are Runner 5. So they can't do that. And of course, all the episodes are missions, so you don't get episodes of you know them sitting around eating dinner and, and back at the thing. Okay, so anyway, you are integrated into Abel Township, and you have to fight the you know against the villain of season one. Season two, there's a whole different thing. In season three, we find Moonchild. Moonchild Ends up having the ability to mind control people through a drink, but also other ways. Runner 5 gets hypnotized into mind control by Moonchild, which is bad because Moonchild is the vil- villain. And so there's a couple of episodes where you are under her control and she leads you to do something terrible. You get onto this fleet of ships where they're doing drastic things to try to stay out of her control and you blow up all those ships and all those people. And then she takes you back to Able Township and you break the gates so all the zombies can get in and you attack Jody, who's a friend of yours. And then you go to attack Sam. Sam is your operator The first guy you talk to from Runner 5, or from uh, the very first mission, and he he names you Runner 5. Sam is, oh, you love Sam. Season 1, Episode 7, A Voice in the Dark, you love Sam. You will love Sam. And so when I was doing that particular mission, I can remember I went into an empty room in my office. The office where I worked had a lot of empty space. And so I would actually, on my lunch break, walk around this space. And I went into a back office, an empty office, and I just kept saying, don't hurt Sam, don't hurt Sam, don't hurt Sam. It was so traumatizing. In the next episodes after that, You are kind of saved by somebody who did something very bad in season one. And he helps you. And he brings you back to Abel. And you are welcomed back to Abel because they knew you were mind controlled at the time. So... The mind control thing, you got to know, it makes you happy to obey her. So it's, it's really trippy. Very, very trippy. And it was kind of traumatizing. And what do I do when I get traumatized by fiction? I write. So this story called I'm a Monster, I wrote it twice. Once as a female, once as a male. At least I gave it my best. And... So it's the same story, just written a little differently in chapter two. And I say it was both written by Gabrielle and Philippe because I let Philippe write the second one. I wrote the first, the female. He wrote the male, which they're both me. (laughs) So that's where we are. And it's... I hope I didn't spoil you too badly. Now, if you are skipping ahead, trying to find a good place to come back in. I'll give you another 10 seconds of silence before I start this story. Well, no, because the story is a spoiler, so we'll get right into it. Okay, I'm a Monster by Gabrielle Lawson and Philippe de Chapter one, Female by Gabrielle Lawson. During the ride, she tried to go back, back to the facility where Archie and Sarah were, where the zombie apocalypse was a delusion and she hadn't killed Sam or anyone, but it didn't work. And then the van stopped and she was still in the apocalypse and it wasn't Archie and Sarah with her, but Simon and Amelia. Abel's half a mile there, five, Simon told her as he led her out of the van. Just run straight there and you should be fine. They'll forgive you. You'll see. Five thought maybe she heard a bit of wistfulness in his snide remark, but she couldn't focus on that right now. Simon got back in the van and Amelia drove away. Five didn't move. She looked in the direction of Abel, but she couldn't get her feet to move. Instead, she remembered everything she'd told Moonchild, everything Moonchild had told her to do. The explosions on the ships, opening the gates at Abel, hurting Jody, attacking Sam. It was the growls behind her that made her move it was force of habit she started walking then jogging and then she was running and the memories just faded away it was just her and the ground beneath her feet the wind in her hair the sound of her feet and the zombies falling back behind her she was startled by the gate it brought her back into focus the gate began to rise and the weight of her guilt drove her to her knees She couldn't even look up to see who belonged to all the feet that surrounded her. Five? It was Sam! Five lifted her head and sobbed uncontrollably. He surprised her then. He knelt down with her and pulled her into a hug. Well, we know you're not mind-controlled anymore. You wouldn't be this miserable if you were. The next half hour was a blur. She didn't speak. She was led to the hospital where Dr. Myers ran her through test after test. It was only when they were alone that she dared to speak. Dr. Myers knew what it was like. I'm not sure how you broke the mind control, Five, Maxine said, but I can't find any trace of the dopamine effect in your brain. Runner three, Five whispered. Simon? Maxine sat on the bed beside her. Five nodded. He was on the ships to get the serum. Same as me. The Command's fleet. Maxine sucked in a breath. It was you. Five began to cry again. She'd killed them. She'd killed them all. Hey, hey, Maxine put a hand on Five's shoulder. I shouldn't have said that. She killed them, Five. She just used you to do it. Five wanted to believe her, but it just hurt so much. She lay down on the bed and sobbed as the faces flashed behind her closed eyelids. Every scientist, every guard, Ed. No, Ed was alive. Simon had said he was alive. Maxine moved and down, knelt down to be at eye level. Tell me about Simon, Five. What did Simon do? Five opened her eyes. The faces went away. There was just Maxine. He gave me the serum. But I didn't see any necrosis, Maxine exclaimed. She rolled up Five's sleeves to look again. Van Ark's injection. Five's voice was was a bit stronger. We never did know what it did to you, Maxine stood again. Listen, Five, you need to put the blame where it belongs. On Moonchild. You couldn't help but do what she wanted. Want what she wanted. I know, I did it. I tried to destroy the machine and I enjoyed it, Five. It felt good. I was happy. Five heard her but didn't think it equated. You didn't kill anyone. I don't think you did either. Five didn't understand. How could she think that? She had pushed the buttons, put in the code. The ships exploded. Sam said you were fighting it. I'm not sure how, but you were. You didn't kill Jody and you didn't kill Sam. You could have, but you didn't. I put in the code. Did you try to kill the people on the ships, Five, before the explosion? Five shook her head. Did Moonchild tell you to kill them? Five nodded. But you didn't. Did she tell you to blow up the ships? Five shook her head. Cut power. See? Maxine said, kneeling again. She lied to you. How could I fight it? I wanted what she wanted. Maxine shrugged. Maybe your will is too strong. Maybe Van Ark's injection helped with that. Hard to know. But you did fight it, Five. You fought it and she had to lie to you to get you to kill. Five just couldn't let herself off the hook like that. I hurt Jody. I led zombies in. You didn't kill Jody Five, and she's not hurt bad. Bruises. No broken bones, no concussion. She's fine. The zombies were a distraction for sure, but we handled them. You were here for something. The ZRD. Moonchild wants it? Why? Five had to think about that. As much as she had shared with Moonchild, Moonchild had not been so forthcoming with her. She just said she wanted to make everyone happy, that she would make the sacrifice to do it. Well, we're going to have to try and work that out. We need you five. We trust you five. Five felt her throat constrict again and the tears flooded her eyes. She didn't deserve it. She was a monster. Dr. Myers dimmed the lights. We forgive you five, she said, and then left her to cry alone. Chapter 2, Mail, by Philippe de Lama Truck. During the ride, he tried to go back, back to the facility where Archie and Sarah were, where the zombie apocalypse was a delusion and he hadn't killed Sam or anyone, but it didn't work. And then the van stopped and he was still in the apocalypse, and it wasn't Archie or, and Sarah with him, but Simon and Amelia. Abel's half a mile there, Five, Simon told him as he pulled him out of the van. Just run straight there and you should be fine. They'll forgive you, you'll see. Five thought maybe he heard a bit of wistfulness in his snide remark, but he couldn't focus on that right now. Simon got back in the van and Amelia drove away. Five didn't move. He looked in the direction of Abel but couldn't get his feet to move. Instead, he remembered everything he'd told Moonchild, everything Moonchild had told him to do. The explosions of the ships opening the gates at Abel, hurting Jody, attacking Sam. It was the growls behind him that made him move. It was force of habit. He started walking, then jogging, and then he was running. And the memories just faded away. It was just him and the ground beneath his feet, the wind in his hair, the sound of his feet, and the zombies falling back behind him. He was so lost in the running that he was startled by the gate. It brought him back into focus. The gate began to rise, and the weight of his guilt drove him to his knees. He couldn't even look up to see who belonged to all the feet that surrounded him. Five? It was Sam. Sam wasn't dead? A tiny spark of relief welled up in him, but it was snuffed out again by the guilt. Well, we know you're not mind-controlled anymore, Sam said. You wouldn't be this miserable if you were. The next hour was a blur. He didn't speak. He was led to the hospital where Dr. Myers ran him through test after test. It was only when they were alone that he dared to speak. Dr. Myers knew what it was like. I'm not sure how you broke the mind control, Five, Maxine said, but I can't find any trace of the dopamine effect in your brain. Runner three, Five whispered. Simon? Maxine sat on the bed beside him. Five nodded. He was on the ships to get the serum. Same as me. The Comancis fleet? Maxine sucked in a breath. It was you. The guilt crashed in on him again. He'd killed them. He'd killed them all. Maxine put a hand on Five's shoulder. I shouldn't have said that. She killed them, Five. She just used you to do it. Five wanted to believe her, but it just hurt so much. He laid down on the bed and covered his face with his arms as the faces flashed behind his closed eyelids every scientist, every guard, Ed. No, Ed was alive. Simon had said he was alive. Maxine moved and knelt down to be at eye level. Tell me about Simon, Five. What did Simon do? Five uncovered his face. The faces went away. There was just Maxine. He gave me the serum. But I didn't see any necrosis, Maxine exclaimed. She rolled up Five's sleeve to look again. Van injection. Five's voice was a bit stronger. We never did know what it did to you, Maxine stood again. Listen, Five, you need to put the blame where it belongs, on Moonchild. You couldn't help but do what she wanted, want what she wanted. I know. I did it. I tried to destroy the machine, and I enjoyed it, Five. It felt good. I was happy. Five heard her but didn't think it equated. You didn't kill anyone. I don't think you did either. Five didn't understand. How could she think that? He had pushed the buttons, put in the code. The ships exploded. Sam said you were fighting it. I'm not sure how, but you were. You didn't kill Jody and you didn't kill Sam. You could have, but you didn't. I put in the code. Did you try to kill the people on the ships, Five, before the explosion? Five shook his head. Did Moonchild tell you to kill them? Five nodded, but you didn't. Did she tell you to blow up the ships? Five shook his head. Cut power. See, Maxine said, kneeling again. She lied to you. How could I fight it? I wanted what she wanted. Maxine shrugged. Maybe your will is too strong. Maybe Van Ark's injection helped with that. Hard to know, but you did fight it, Five. You fought it, and she had to lie to you to get you to kill. Five just couldn't let him off the hook like that. I hurt Jody. I let the zombies in. You didn't kill Jody, Five, and she's not hurt bad. Bruises, no broken bones, no concussion. She's fine. She's glad you're back. We all are. The zombies were a distraction for sure, but we handled them. You were here for something. The ZRD. Moonchild wants it? Why? Five had to think about that. As much as he had shared with Moonchild, Moonchild had not been so forthcoming with him. She just said she wanted to make everyone happy, that she would make the sacrifice to do it. Well, we're going to have to try and work that out. We need you, Five. We trust you, Five. Five felt his throat constrict again and found his eyes welling with tears. He didn't deserve it. He was a monster. Dr. Myers dimmed the lights. We forgive you five, she said, then left him to cry alone. And now ten minutes of silence for the people who skipped it to hopefully find their way back in. Okay, that is my only Zombies Run fic to date. Maybe because that was the only episode that... Well, group of episodes that truly traumatized me. Some of the others were a bit worrisome at times, but that wasn't the one that really traumatized me. Um, I didn't have to write like a whole sequel or anything to get out of it. Um, because, you know, the episodes did that. The missions following helped. But it... Uh, it did spark this this scene in me of runner 5 returning and i wanted to give both sides of it both genders a shake because of the genderlessness of runner 5 in in my head canon runner 5 is definitely a female oddly enough when we did have a mission as new cantons runner 5 my head canon was that was a male which was odd because i was running it but anyway <laughs> um I wanted to put a chapter out there for the people who had canon Runner 5 as male. So, um, probably not exactly how a male writer would write it, though, because I don't have that perspective. But, you know, obviously most of the chapter 1 was the same as chapter 2, but there was subtle differences. Um, Runner 5 didn't cry till the end, because men sometimes do cry. (laughs) but, uh, runner five female is more, um, open to letting her emotions show and killing all those people on the boats was definitely devastating as well as attacking her friends. So it was rough. Oh, I guess I just spoiled it again. Oops. Sorry. Anyway, so it sparked that little scene with me. Um, I often find that if the fandom itself does a great job of all the storytelling, it doesn't leave me any spots to fill in or whatever, that I find myself not needing to write anything for it. And Zombies Run has just been spectacular, so I haven't felt the need to write something. I did feel the need to read something once, um, and fortunately... One of the people on RaffleNet. You you hear about RaffleNet in the game. It's like their version of the internet that's left after the apocalypse. But it's also a forum that uh, Z- and Runners Five can can join and uh, chat with. And uh, somebody found this story for me when I said what I wanted, and it's a great story. I have it bookmarked on my um, on my AO three. And it's called The Beginner's Guide to Tom Waits by Mary Flanner. And Mary Flanner's all one word. It's the story of Jack and Eugene. They're meeting up to the point where, spoiler, Eugene loses his leg. He tells this story in season two or season three. And it just sparked me as a so as a that especially the end there that was such a story of love in my campus ministry when I was in college you know my the pastor always remarked that love is a verb it's not a feeling just a noun it's also a verb it's what you do and I remember seeing my grandfather a veteran of world war ii putting a bra on his wife she had alzheimer my grandmother had alzheimer's by then And I thought, this is a man who took his in sickness and in health very seriously in his vows. And he wasn't a showy man when it came to love. But what I saw him doing was love. And what you hear Eugene say about after he gets stabbed in the ankle, he wasn't bit, he was stabbed in the ankle, and then he leaned on Jack, and Jack... Carried, you know, kind of helped him along. And when he couldn't walk anymore, Jack carried him. And I thought, that that's it. Right there. That is an act of love. There are, if it's a bother to you, homosexual relations that happen in Zombies Run. It's not everyone. But I think it mirrors... Pretty well, you know, our present, you know, day-to-day lives, my cousin is gay. As far as I know, he's the only member of my family, my wider family, that is. That's okay. I don't have any problem with that. I am a Christian, but I'm a progressive Christian. I don't think God hates him because of this, and it's not my place to judge. My place is to love I'm supposed to love my enemies. Shouldn't that mean I should love everybody else who's closer than that too? You know? Jesus says, if you love your brother, what are you doing more than others? I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I think he means we're supposed to love everybody in between those two points. Your brother and your enemy. (laughs) So it's not my place to judge my cousin. It's my place to love my cousin. I have a friend who is trans as well. Again, it's my place to love her. It is not my place to judge her. That's God's. And he'll deal with, if there isn't something to be dealt with, he will do it. It's not up to me. It's my place to love. So, a minority of the people left in the zombie apocalypse are also gay. Maxine Myers has a wife. Jack and Eugene are a couple. And... As far as I know, oh, they eventually get Amelia and Zoe, but, you know, they, there's also heterosexual relationships that happen. So, just so you know. It's not remarked on in a Zombies Run. It's very much just accepted. And I think that's kind of cool. That's really how it should be in real life anyway. Okay, so we got to get ready for another story. And I will have to set the stage. Okay, in the fifth season of DS9, there is an episode called By Inferno's Light. It actually is a series of episodes. And in that, we find out that the Dr. Bashir we've been seeing on the station, including the one that helped Kira give birth to O'Brien, the O'Brien's baby, and did brain surgery, apparently, on Cisco was not Julian Bashir. It was a changeling. Spoiler! (laughs) But this show has been over for quite some time. (laughs) So if you haven't, if you're spoilered, it's a little too late for spoilers now. So we find out that he's a changeling when we follow Worf and Garrick to internment camp 371, a prison camp for Romulan and Cardassian prisoners of the Dominion. And when Garrick and when Garrick goes to the barracks where he's supposed to stay, he finds Dr. Bashir there. And you know, he's been a while because in season five, you see different uniforms. They changed their uniforms, but this Dr. Bashir is wearing the old uniform. So he was taken on the way to a medical um, conference and he was replaced. And the people back on the station don't know about this until Garrick and Worf and Bashir and a couple others escape and come back through the wormhole back to our Deep Space Nine. And when Kira and the others see Doctor Bashir on the shuttle or that there or runabout that they're in, they realize that other Doctor Bashir who's now on this other shuttle has a bomb. He's trying to blow up the Bajoran sun. So they blow him out of the water. That's the point (laughs) when, when they get on the comm system that they've realized that the Dr. Bashir who has been there all along. was a changeling. And then Worf is injured. So Dr. Bashir, the real one treats Worf's injuries and O'Brien makes some stupid comments about, He's easier to get along with. He was easier to get along with. He's taught, you know, it's, I'm guessing they tried to go for that way that guy friends will kind of insult each other. But, you know, they, it's really meant to be kind of like an endearing remark. But it didn't come off that way. It rubbed me the wrong way back when it first aired. And it was on a second viewing, probably not the second, maybe, but, you know, probably a lot more because I have the DVD set. Um, but it was in 2010 when I watched it again. And I just said, mm, that still rubs me the wrong way. And I need to do something about it. So this story is a coda to By Inferno's Light. And it rectifies the welcome that Bashir got after his imprisonment. All right. It's titled, quite appropriately, Welcome Home. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Welcome Home. Julian Bashir tried to lose himself in his work. He'd been afraid this last month of what the changeling would have done to the people on the station in his place as chief medical officer. Now he knew what he'd done. Brain surgery on the captain, for starters. He'd had to dig through every record, and he'd want to double-check every patient, of course, to see that they weren't harmed by the changeling. He was rather glad that O'Brien had left. It hurt when he'd said he'd found the changeling easier to get along with. Didn't he realize that Bashir had missed his friendship for the last month? Of course, O'Brien didn't even know he was missing. It was just another day of banter to him. It wasn't to Bashir. It was his first day of freedom after a month of captivity separated from all his friends, Starfleet, the Federations, the very goings-on in the Alpha Quadrant, and the rest of the universe outside of Dominion Internment Camp 371. When was the last time you had a decent meal, Julian looked up to find Jadzia leaning over his desk. She was just as beautiful as he remembered. In fact, she hadn't changed at all, and while that was logically to be expected, it still felt odd. "'How's Wharf?" he asked. "'Resting,' she replied and gave him a sly smile. "'And I asked you first.' "'I spent five days without a meal at all this last week,' he said finally, "'and what they called rations the rest of the time was hardly worth calling food.' Jadzia's smile widened. Then I'm taking you to dinner. Julian liked the idea, but he turned back to his files and the fear returned. The O'Brien's baby, the captain's brain. What else did he do, Jadzia? Her hand on his shoulder turned him around. He sabotaged our ch- attempt to close the wormhole. He killed three people to take a runabout, and he tried to blow up the Bajoran sun. She took a breath. But as far as I know, he never hurt a patient. And if I know you, you'll have every one of them in here in the next week. Let it go for tonight, and just be home, Julian. Home. He'd barely set foot in his quarters long enough to shower and change into this new-style uniform that was actually too big. Why a changeling would even bother with having a real uniform in his closet baffled him. She took his hand, which jolted him from those thoughts. Odo, checked out your quarters. There's nothing else there that shouldn't be. Let's go. She pulled him out of his chair. He let her. But instead of backing up, she moved closer and pulled him into a hug. I've missed you, she said. He laughed briefly, sadly. Of course, that was what he'd wanted, but he knew it was impossible. How? You didn't even know I was gone until I stood on the station. She still held him. From the moment I saw you standing there and retroactively back to the old uniforms, I knew in that instant you'd been gone at least that long. Now she let go, pushing him back from her but not letting go of his arms. And Miles is sorry. He meant to say that too. Bashir smiled. How is it possible you know me so well and still didn't realize he wasn't me? She moved beside him and took his arm and physically walked him out of the infirmary. Oh, it's all clear in hindsight. For one thing, he didn't have your sense of humor. Now, what was the one thing you've been dying to eat for the last month? I'll tell you everything at dinner. He looked at her, trying to appear serious. I only get one thing? She laughed, and he laughed, and it was the first time he felt entirely free since he'd woken up in that camp. He was home. The end. <laughs> Okay, I don't think that there's needs to be a whole lot of commentary about that one, except to say that yeah, it was written in 2010, which really is quite a few years from the last uh, Deep Space Nine story that I had written. I mean, Faith Three spanned the cross from 1999 to 2000, 2001, 2002. I think that was it. So it was like eight years. From that to this story, Um, I think the welcome home that he got was just festering in those eight years. And so when I watched it on rewrite, you know, I thought I got to do something about this. I can do it. And again, this didn't need to be a long story. just needed a short little scene at the end of that episode to make it better. And so that's what this story was. Now, my next story is also Deep Space Nine. This takes place at the after the last episode, What You Leave Behind. It was originally published in Salutorian 3. That was a fanzine, excuse me Salutatorian 3, a fanzine produced by the El Fadil Alexander Civic fan Club, and I first posted it to the internet in 2002. So this one was actually written well before a welcome home, but it takes place later. In story time, in the chronology, so that's why I'm reading it now. It was is called a clever plan. All right, this yeah that that's I was reading the notes ahead of time to see if I needed to say any more before that. So setting the stage. Well, if you watched the last episode, we said goodbye to Captain Cisco because he was going to take more of his role as the emissary, um, and if you read the first books that take place after uh, what the end of Deep Space Nine, then you find out that Kira then is in charge of the station and that Odo goes to be with his people to kind of be an ambassador to kind of get them on board to not be the villains that they have been. And Ro Laren, a Bajoran first seen, only briefly seen, in T&G, comes in as the new head of security. So those are the players in this story. It does have to do with Section 31. Section 31 first appeared in... Oh, maybe Dr. Pashir, I presume, wasn't the next one after by Inferno's light. Maybe it's this thing to do with section 31. Either way, um, it was still something Bashir had to deal with. So coming from the internment camp and in finding his friends liked the other guy better, you know, that's gone by the, time, by the time O'Brien says so. Anyway, so in this we're going to see section 31 again. My Bashir is a very idealistic Bashir the same Bashir we see in the series, who never gives in to Section 31. They tell him he's recruited, whether he wants to be or not. He keeps insisting that he's not. He gets manipulated into doing it anyway, but he's never going to willingly give in. Now, there are books where he did go on a mission, um, and in the documentary for Deep Space Nine... They said, you know, the writers were sitting around kind of conjecturing what would be going on now, 20 years down, um, and that Bashir would actually be running Section 31. I don't really go along with that, but he kind of wants to um, reform it as he goes. Not my Bashir. Um, I could kind of bend my Bashir just a little bit to make that doable, but eh, it's not my Bashir. This story doesn't take place long after the events of Deep Space Nine, but it does have Roe Laren as the security officer now. And so on the station, Bashir and Roe are the only people we're going to um, be dealing with. Only two characters. Okay, let's get going. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, A Clever Plan by Gabrielle Lawson. Sloane posed himself in his usual position, one leg crossed over the other in the chair at the foot of Bashir's bed. Then he nodded his readiness for the transport. There was hardly a tingle as the transport took hold. It faded barely three seconds later. As far as Bashir would know, he was still in his quarters on the station. "'Good to see you again, doctor,' Sloan offered over his steepled fingers as Bashir stirred. Bashir's eyes narrowed in obvious distaste. "'Sloan!' he replied, as if the name were a curse word. He stood, throwing off any grogginess he might have felt with the blanket from his bed. What is this fascination you have with seeing me in my nightclothes? Sloane smiled and tried not to act flustered. He'd nearly forgotten Bashir had so sharp a wit. Bashir was using it to try and knock him off balance. To explain to Bashir Section 31's reasoning for approaching him at night would only be distracting and counterproductive. We have a new assignment for you. Bashir's eyebrows shot up. First, he said, crossing his arms over his chest, and for the umpteenth time, I do not work for you. And second, I didn't think you and I were on speaking terms, what with you being dead and all. Sloan chuckled softly. It wouldn't be the first time, he thought. In light of how things turned out, we've decided to forgive you. So you admit I was right, Bashir held. "'Sloan shook his head but kept up the smile. "'It was easy with Bashir. "'There was so much he didn't know. "'You were lucky. "'There's a world of difference between lucky and right.' "'And what if I don't care for your forgiveness?' "'The smile dropped. "'You should accept it anyway. "'Threats were sometimes best left to the imagination.' "'Bashir nodded. "'He understood. "'He was an intelligent man, after all. "'And what about you? "'I saw you die. "'Ran the scans myself.' The smile returned. "'Well,' Sloane replied, "'what fun would it be if I just gave you all the answers? "'Where'd the mystery be in that?' Bashir took a deep breath. He was getting angry. "'What makes you think I'm having any fun?' "'Well, now neither of them would. Bashir got tedious when he got angry. "'Let's not start that again. "'It never leads anywhere. "'We should just agree to disagree and get on with the mission.' "'I don't want your mission.' I don't want to be a part of Section 31. Bashir sank down on the bed. He sounded tired again. Good, Sloane thought. He'll be easier to deal with now. You haven't even heard the mission. I'm sure it's just the opposite of whatever you're going to describe, Bashir said. Why not just kill me now and be done with it? Or am I a pet project of yours? Sloane shook his head sadly. I don't want to kill you, Doctor. I like you. You're a good man. The Federation needs good men. That isn't what you called me last time we met. Dangerous. That's what he'd called him last time. He was still that. He had to be used carefully. Sloan realized that now. He'd been too lax before. He'd let his guard down. Bashir had won that round, and it was only sheer luck that the changeling, once cured, had decided to end the war. You surprised me, Sloan admitted. I don't believe you would jeopardize the Federation, not knowingly. But there's so much you don't see, or won't. I see it, Bashir argued. Not everyone chooses to play nice. But that doesn't mean I have to do unto others before they do unto me. I don't have to align myself with the lowest common denominator. Someone has to, Sloan held. Cheaters prosper more often than you think. So it's all right for us to cheat, Bashir asked. I believe there's a proverb for that one, too. Two wrongs don't make a right, Sloane recited, shaking his head. What do one right and one wrong make? He didn't bother making the doctor answer. Not everything we do is lowest common denominator. Oh, you're branching out into humanitarian work? Monsieur asked snidely. Sno- Sloane's smile widened. You could say that. Good. Now they could get down to the mission. There was a small pocket of Federation citizens on Equire when it fell to the Dominion. They'd gone into hiding, but they also started up a resistance movement. They made quite a stir. They sabotaged two munitions convoys and bombed a Cardassian barracks. Bashir shrugged. The war's over. Sloane could tell Bashir was interested, despite his remark. True, but not all conquered resist their captors. The Equirans got a lot out of being in the Dominion. Their economy picked up and crime dropped. The political turmoil of the last six decades disappeared overnight. They're not all happy with the way things turned out. Bashir looked appalled. Well, really, it was just his eyebrows, but he did, the, which he drew down over his eyes. But Sloan could read him just the same. But they weren't free, he said. Sloan shrugged. They weren't free before. The Acquarians have had a succession of fascist dictators. Paranoia was the rule of the day. Children denounced parents. The Acquarian National Party outlawed and prosecu- persecuted any opposition. Acquarian citizens lived in fear. The Dominion displaced the ENP and brought stability. Sloane knew he was getting to Bashir. Why were we even there? Bashir asked, trying to help, of course. Sloan answered, smiling applying our principles in all fairness and benevolence, negotiating, overseeing elections, that sort of thing. Bashir was interested, though he was trying not to show it. What about now? All the sarcasm had left his voice. No smile now. Sloan had to sell Bashir on the mission with his next words. They were only four hours from the Equire system, and Bashir would need to be briefed and prepped. Now the native populace has decided to keep dominion rule even without the dominion. Off-worlders are expected to conform or face arrest and execution. Bashir didn't react, but Sloan knew he had him. Bashir couldn't resist this one. There was nothing he could object to. Our citizens' situation has become untenable. Two days ago, the new government decreed that any aquirin aiding a Federation citizen was guilty of treason. Yesterday, the leaders were turned over to authorities by those who had been providing a safe house in an outlying village near the capital. The leaders were hanged, but not before their families were butchered one by one in front of them. Bashir looked a little pale, and he stood again and started pacing. He was considering it. Sloane waited, knowing he'd speak eventually. "'Why you?' he finally asked. It was counterproductive, but Sloan couldn't resist. "'Don't you mean us?' You, Bashir repeated, why you and not Starfleet Intelligence? Starfleet Intelligence would never make it in, Sloan replied, leaning back in his chair. The majority of the locals have sided with the government. That doesn't answer my question. Bashir stopped pacing and faced him. Why you? And while we're at it, why me? Because we have an operative there, Sloan admitted. That was enough for now. And because there will likely be wounded, Section 31 doesn't have its own doctors, Bashir asked, his mocking tone returning. He started pacing again as he reasoned it out. At least you had reason on Romulus. I had access. I was invited to the conference. I knew Senator Kretak. He stopped, and Sloan surmised he wouldn't like Bashir's conclusion. Section 31 is either trying awfully hard to find a mission I won't object to, or it's not really the mission you're describing at all. Too close on both counts. "'Sloan stood to meet him. "'The first one was easier, at least. "'You're part of Section 31.' "'He held up a hand to forestall the argument Bashir would surely make. "'And rather than continue the adversarial relationship we've had in the past, "'we decided a less objectionable to you mission would be the best way "'to show you our worth to the Federation. "'Such a mission could build trust for both sides. "'We can't trust you if you won't trust us.' Bashir turned away. Oh, one little mission, and I'm supposed to forget that you abducted and tortured me. Sloan tried to interrupt. I wouldn't call it depriving me of sleep, Bashir threw back, denying me food, manipulating my sense of reality to induce higher stress levels. Well, even you can't deny you had me tortured on Romulus. It had to be believable, Sloan admitted. We knew they couldn't actually get anything out of you. Bashir's eyebrows shot up in indignation. So they just tried that much harder. Sloan held up his hands. Hey, I was tortured too, remember? Bashir threw up his hands. You were killed too, I remember. He should have known better than to argue torture with an overly sensitive, genetically engineered doctor. Still, Sloane knew he didn't have to argue at all, nor did he have to admit anything. So you're just going to turn your back on the innocent Federation citizens on Equire? You would. Bishir replied, more calm now. "'If it wasn't for the one that's your operative,' he frowned and crossed his arms. "'Just where he wanted him.' "'But you and I,' Sloane said, "'are nothing alike.' And when Bashir didn't speak right away, Sloane knew he had him. Bashir slumped down onto the bed again. Sloane knew he'd won. Again. "'Why don't you get dressed, Doctor?' he suggested. "'We'll send a shuttle for you in half an hour.' Don't worry, we've made all the arrangements. He left the bedroom with Bashir defeated, still sitting on the bed. To anyone else, it was an imperceptible sound, the sound of a hologram shifting. Bashir was on a holodeck, just like the first time Sloan had taken him. It made sense, considering the modifications he'd made to his real quarters, like the containment field he'd used to capture Sloan the last time he'd visited. Sloan wouldn't have risked the same thing happening. Whatever his ethical failings, Sloan learned from his mistakes. He'd want a more controllable environment. So, half an hour. It might as well have been an eternity for Bashir. He had a choice to make. Save others and sell his soul in the process, or find a way back to DS9, leaving the innocent to their fate. Sloan, if he was telling the truth, had a good argument. The thought of those families being murdered tore at Bashir's heart. They needed saving, and he wanted to save them. But he also knew what it would cost, even if Sloane were telling the truth. If he went with them now, of his own free will, it would never end. They'd never stop coming. It would be another humanitarian mission, maybe just slightly more questionable than this one, then another, just a little more objectionable than that one, on and on in little steps until he could justify anything they wanted of him, just like Sloane. Either way, Bashir would lose. He thought again about what this mission might entail. He didn't suppose Sloane would allow him to stay behind and wait for the wounded. He'd have to go down to the planet's surface with everyone else and maybe even alone. He couldn't do it. It was so simple an answer. Because of who he was, what he was, he could not go on an away mission. He probably couldn't step out into the corridor He felt remorse for the Federation citizens on Equire, but it was a relief to know he wasn't just turning his back on them. If this were really an important mission to Section 31, Sloane would go get them anyway. His mind made up, Bashir set out to find the holodeck's controls. He heard Sloane leave his quarters through the main door, so he tried there. Computer, door, he called quietly, not really expecting it to work. But the door appeared dutifully, and Bashir reasoned that Section 31 probably assumed their victims would not suspect they were in a holodeck didn't bother getting dressed. That could be accomplished later. He reasoned he had roughly 20 minutes before Sloan returned. He'd have to work fast. He didn't know how much access he'd have from just a holodeck's computer console. He knew communications could be made from inside the holodeck to out, but he hoped he could get more than that. He wanted information, enough to expose Section 31 to the rest of the Federation, or at least Starfleet. He'd given up on Captain Sisko's orders since, Cap- since Sisko was gone but this was an opportunity he likely wouldn't get again. Sloan checked the time. Five more minutes. He checked the holo program. In the contrived scenario, Colonel Kira would have orders for Bashir to take a runabout to Bajor for some sort of medical emergency there. The runabout would divert instead to a shuttle bay on this ship still in the holodeck. But when Bashir exited the bay, he'd exit the holodeck without ever knowing he'd been in one. He'd be ready for the mission without knowing he'd been deceived. Sir, Motubo called. I'm picking up a coded subspace transmission. Sloan spun around. They were supposed to be running in radio silence. From where? From here, Motubo answered. To Deep Space Nine. Damn. He'd underestimated Bashir. Shut it down. I can't, sir, Motubo reported. It's already ended. Sloan was already halfway to the turbolift. I want two armed men to meet me at the holodeck entrance. It was a quick trip to the turbolift, and the two men he'd requested were waiting for him when it stopped. Phasers on stun, he ordered. He stepped forward, and the holodeck's doors parted. There was no one there. The console was plainly visible to the right of the door. It was the only place where Bashir could have accessed communications— sloan sent one man to look in the bedroom he kept the other at the door the first returned, shaking his head sloan pressed a control on the console and bashir's quarters winked out of existence no bashir sloan called the bridge any record of transport motubu responded no sir good sloan replied lock down the transporter and find out what was in that transmission he has to be on this ship somewhere use the internal sensors The new security chief looked a little preoccupied as she strode through the infirmary door. Can I help you? Bashir asked her. Lieutenant Rowe looked up from the tricorder she was holding. Dr. Bashir, she acknowledged, frowning. Internal transportation is for emergency use only, as I'm sure you're well aware. It's not for getting yourself to work in the morning. Ah, that, Bashir thought. Roe had only been on the station for a few months. Bashir hadn't wanted to bother her with all of his security concerns just yet. And he wasn't at all sure if Section 31 would be listening in if he were to explain the hollow emitters, subspace transmitter, or internal sensor array in his quarters just now. For now, he just smiled and argued lightly. At this hour, I'm not on duty for another four hours. She lowered her eyelids slightly. Normally, neither am I. Now that she mentioned it, Bashir did notice dark circles under her eyes. If you're not on duty, she continued, why are you in uniform? I'm a Starfleet officer, Bashir replied. We're almost always in uniform. Ro lifted one eyebrow at him but checked the tricorder again. There was a transport from your quarters to Quark's Hollow Suites roughly 45 minutes ago. 45 minutes was a long time. Would Sloan leave him alone that long if he suspected? If I were coming to work. Bashir asked Roe, hiding his inner anxiety and continuing the banter, why would I beam to Quark's holosuites? Apparently, Roe Laren didn't care for such puzzles at O300 to try and mask the fact that you'd use the transporter in a non-emergency capacity. To be truthful, Bashir didn't much care for such puzzles either. He cared less for Roe's accusatory tone, and the only thing he'd masked was the transmission. He hadn't had time to hide the transport. He picked up a pad and started writing as he spoke. Just in case you haven't read it in my personnel file yet, he stated, keeping the same friendly tone but not the smile. I'm genetically enhanced. If I were trying to mask a transport, you wouldn't know about it at all. I certainly wouldn't just beam into quarks. He handed the pad to Roe. I might do something like this. Roe began to read and then drew her brows down in confusion at the complicated plans Bashir had given her. "'This is an internal,' she said after a few minutes. "'No,' Bashir confirmed. "'It's external, and it might just be how someone keeps beaming in and out of my quarters "'at two in the morning. "'Perhaps you could investigate that for a while.'" "'Ops to Dr. Bashir.' "'It was a female voice. "'Bashir tapped his comm badge. "'Bashir here.' "'Sorry to wake you, sir,' the ops officer began, but then stopped. "'You're in the infirmary.' "'Bashir sighed. "'Not for the first time he wished Sloane would stick to better hours.' I had some trouble sleeping, he told the woman. That seemed to satisfy her, though Ro was still blocking the doorway. Sorry to hear that, sir. You have a priority one incoming transmission. It's encrypted. Ro's eyebrows shot up at that. Bashir toyed with the idea of filling her in. She was bound to learn, eventually. She was chief of security, after all. No, Bashir wanted Kira on hand when that happened. With Ro's background, he wasn't sure she didn't already know about Section 31 anyway. "'I'll take it in my office,' he replied to Ops. "'If you'll excuse me,' he told Rowe, pointing again to the pad. Rowe reluctantly turned and left. "'We'll talk about this in the morning,' she said, holding the pad up just over her shoulder. Bashir nodded and let the door to his office close behind him before he moved to his desk. He secured his computer console, isolating it from the rest of the station. Then he put in the decryption codes. Information began pouring across the display screen." Transmission frequencies, shield variances, transporter schematics, enough to begin to break down Section 31's sense of omnipotence. Finally, the transmission ended with one particularly large data stream. It only took a few moments for the computer to compile that last one. Bashir spoke as soon as it was finished. Computer, activate LMH Bashir 1. An exact duplicate of himself coalesced in the office. He was still wearing nightclothes. I'm very glad to see you, he said, sounding very relieved indeed. Then he remembered and abruptly changed his attire to match what Bashir was wearing. You're all right? Bashir asked. They didn't tamper with your program. The holographic Bashir smiled. I don't think they even suspected a thing. They're probably still looking for me, at you, on the ship. Bashir nodded, though he still didn't feel like smiling. He knew he should have been happy. He'd outthought Sloan, he had worked it all out, set it up months ago. Sloan simply set it off. Sloan's transport it was in was picked up by the sensors, which triggered Bashir's own transport out to Quark's and the activation of the LMH. When Sloan transported back out again, attempting to take Bashir with him, the LMH was surreptitiously transmitted along with the transport. It had worked, but Sloan would eventually catch on. We got him, Bashir conceded. This time, the end. So, I thought it was a clever plan what Bashir came up with, so I named the whole story A Clever Plan. <laughs> it kind of works. Um, it has one of those twist endings. Um, <clears throat> and it's not the first time I did a twist ending. The no, First Consideration had one as well. But this one, you, I... I did have to kind of like explain the twist there at the end in the, in the story, which told exactly what that clever plan was. But um, I thought this was kind of fun. I think somewhere in one of my stories, I have this fun intersta- interchange between Bashir and Sloan, and I haven't come across it yet in my readings. So I'm like, I know it's in there somewhere. Something where Sloan says, I think, and Bashir cuts him off and says, I think better and probably more often. <laughs> In this one episode where Bashir was tortured by Romulans, um, there was some really, really um, snappy, snarky exchanges between the two of them in a public setting. So <laughs> um, it, it is in character. But, um, yeah, I really kind of liked this. I I, I was writing it when we they were having some kind of social interaction at my church in a place called we, what, that we called the third place. So we had church. We had the church offices. We had, well, church was in a theater, and, a movie theater, and then the church offices. And then I got this other place for social things called it the third place. And we were there. And I was off in a corner just writing this because when I have something to write and I'm on it, it's the most fun thing for me to be doing. I put away video games for like two years. Because one, my thumb hurt, and two, I wanted to write. And writing is more fun than playing video games. And I like video games, okay? I can sit in a room at a social thing and, and just be writing if that's what's in my, you know, if I've got this story and it's there and I just got to write it. And A Clever Plan was like that. I love the, the back and forth between what it is actually the LMH and Sloan. So I think the LMH was originally created in Dr. Bashir, I presume. He was going to be the new long-term long medical hologram model. But then when he, they found out he was genetically engineered, they kind of stopped that. But I figured it's still there in the infirmary. And Bashir kind of worked with it and uh, set it up like, I can use this. And so he's been tweaking it so that that one really, really acts like him. And then he set up this elaborate plan so that the LMH would be the next thing that Sloane took, not him. So I think that was kind of cool. Also, when I was looking at my spreadsheet, wherein I keep a list of the stories I've read in which episodes, I realized there's one other short story besides the sequel that I wrote to somebody else's story that I haven't read yet. So I've got one more in me. All right? This one is in The Angel fandom. Now I've mentioned it before that I had to write a therapy story after Doyle was killed in the ninth episode. This story happens right after that ninth episode. It is a short story and it is not the therapy story. It's one of those that just kept me crying, okay? (laughs) This is called Just a Messenger." And the summary is Angel goes to tell Harry the news about Doyle. So I need to set the stage. There was one episode. I think it was like the fifth. Anyway, we meet Doyle's ex-wife. And we find that Alan Francis Doyle is his actual name. She calls him Francis. Was a third grade teacher before he kind of fell into the slump he's in that he ends up having to pay penance by getting these headaches, these visions that are so painful to give... Angel, you know, an idea where he's needed next. It ended, you know, the thing that messed everything up is one day he sneezed and spikes came out of his face. And that's how he found out he was half demon and he couldn't handle it. Harry is short for Harriet. She had actually kind of gone the other way and she studied demonology and she was all like she was accepting of him. But Alan Francis Doyle couldn't accept himself He had a lot of shame and, you know, disgust. And he went up drinking and, you know, kind of, you know, it was all how he was when Angel first found him. And he wasn't exactly, you know, a third grade teacher anymore. In the episode, Harry is getting remarried to a demon that didn't look all inhuman. He had kind of something on his forehead but it turns out that in the um, party that happens before the wedding, now since they found out that she was um, divorced, they have a um, ritual they have to do wherein they eat her ex-husband's brain. So once uh, Harry, Doyle, and Angel figure that out, Angel goes all vampire and they get Doyle out of there. And uh, Harry does not end up marrying into the demon family. And that's the last we hear of of Harry, which is kind of sad, because she was kind of an interesting character. And I do use her in the longer story, the therapy story, as well. But in this one, you know, Harry was his wife. So Doyle is dead as of ninth episode, the episode called Hero. And... Yeah, somebody ought to tell her. So this is Angel going to tell Harry that Doyle has died. Angel, Just a Messenger by Gabrielle Lawson. She must have known he was coming because she told him to come in as soon as he knocked. He tried the door. It wasn't locked, so he let himself in. She was sitting on her couch and didn't even look up to see who had entered. She had a large manila envelope she was staring at it her knuckles were white and the envelope was starting to buckle where she gripped it harry angel ventured he wasn't even sure if he should call her that doyle had called her that her words were deliberate as if she was holding something back what happened angel didn't know where to start he'd been trying to figure that out the whole way over he was disappointed with what finally slipped out of his mouth. How did you know? Still not looking at him, she held up the envelope. He had a will, she replied more softly. I guess he never got around to changing it. What happened? Angel wasn't sure how much she knew. What had Doyle told her about either of them? Did she know he was a vampire? Did she know about Doyle's visions or how he first got them? She turned her head, finally seeing him. He told me about you, if that's what you're worried about. Angel took a breath, actually relieved. He trusted her, because Doyle had. He saved us, he he finally said, starting at the end, at the one point he always came back to. Her eyebrows dipped and her eyes glistened with tears she was resisting saved you how now he would start at the beginning and go first full circle back to where he'd started he had a vision of people hiding so he found them he told her who they were and why they were hiding he told her about the scourge just as Doyle had by telling her about Lucas and the bracken he'd turned away he told her how Doyle was terrified of the scourge because of what he'd seen but he went after the boy anyway talked him into coming back he even diverted their attention so they wouldn't find Reef. She couldn't hold the tears any more, and one slipped from her eye and down her cheek. Then what? She managed, barely managed. She asked, barely managing a whisper. I pretended to join them. Angel replied. Doyle stayed in demon form, and I broke his neck to prove myself to them. Her head lifted sharply at that, but Angel had anticipated she'd be angry and miss or misunderstand he also de- he'd also decided to tell her anyway she deserved to know the whole story well except maybe about cordelia he'd leave that out he woke up after the scourge had gone and got reefed to the ship that was going to take his family to safety she put the envelope down on the coffee table then why do i have his will he was taking too long but doyle deserved the time so he told her about the beacon and how the ship's first mate had given them up, about how he'd raced to the pier with the demons right behind him, and how they'd all gotten locked inside the hold when the beacon came down. I was going to jump, he said. There was no other way, but Doyle hit me, knocked me through the chain railing to the deck below. I tried to stop him, but before I could climb back up, he'd jumped. Angel could still see him, looking back over his shoulder, smiling. "'He disabled it,' he continued, though it was harder now. "'As he did, she got up, taking a photograph from the envelope, "'and went to gaze out the window. "'He pulled the cables apart even as it burned him. "'It flashed, and and he was gone. "'Her head dropped and her shoulders shook. "'His throat hurt. "'He saved us.' "'It's not fair. "'Angel didn't know if that was true.' not after the oracles. He wanted Doyle back, but he didn't want to rob him of his atonement either. Doyle had earned it, and then some. He died a hero, Angel said, knowing it couldn't take away the pain, because it hadn't for him. He shouldn't even have been there, she argued. Wasn't it enough what they did to him? Angel wasn't quite sure what to say. Not that he didn't punish himself enough, She turned, leaned back against the glass, trembling. I know about the visions. He told me. He said, it's nothing, Harry. It's nothing. She met Angel's eyes with her own. I was married to him. I loved him. She choked back the tears and her her voice squeaked. When he hurt, I hurt too. She turned away again. Four years of that, she cried at the window, at the powers that be. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve to die. She finally let the sobs come, pushing her head to the glass as she cried. He wasn't bad, she said. He just thought he was. She drew in a ragged breath. She stifled the sto- sobs again. Not like you. Angel couldn't speak. He couldn't move. He was stuck to the floor where he was by her words because they were true. How many people? she asked. Angel shook his head, still unable to stop her words, her truth. How many people had he killed? She spun around. How many? she screamed at him. Angel swallowed, but his voice came out a whisper. More than I can count. And you get 200 years, she concluded, irony filling her voice. He didn't even get 30 She stepped toward him, her eyes shooting fire. You can fight demons and vampires, and you couldn't stop Francis? You were there. You were the one who deserved it. You had your life and more. He deserved his. Her knees began to shake, and Angel knew she'd fall. So he went to her, held her, even as she fought him. Her words stung, but she was right about everything. Except that Doyle had caught him by surprise. But he should have seen it coming, he told himself. He'd already decided he was going to die before Doyle did it. Doyle was just starting on his second chance in life. Angel had had so many. I know, he said. He was a good man, she sobbed, falling limp into his arms. He couldn't see it. He thought he thought because of what he was that he must be bad. But he wasn't. Angel carried her to the couch and sat down with her. "'I should have stayed with him. "'I pushed too hard. "'I should have seen what it was doing to him. "'I should have tried harder, helped him through it.' "'Angel held her to him and stroked her hair. "'Maybe,' he told her softly, "'maybe not. "'It wasn't his fault he was half-demon, "'but it's not your fault he chose what he did. "'He chose his life, Harry, and he chose his death.' "'He closed his eyes, seeing Doyle smile again, "'there against the bright light of the beacon.' His voice was barely a breath when he could speak again, and I'd have given anything to change his mind. She couldn't speak any more either. Angel stayed for another two hours, just holding her and letting her cry. She fell asleep, and he laid her down where she was. He found a blanket on a chair and pulled it over her. She still had the picture in her hand. Doyle looked like a different person. He was young and smiling, wearing a tuxedo and holding his bride. Not a care in the world. He might have had that again, Angel thought. Maybe with Cordelia. It's what he'd deserved. He turned off the lights and left her, making sure the door locked behind him. The end. I wasn't expecting to get teary eyed on that one. I mean, it was a long, long time ago that that ninth episode aired. I was still in grad school and I graduated grad school in January of 1999. So more than 20 years ago. Okay. (laughs) I wasn't expecting still have tears in my eyes and uh, needing a Kleenex uh, at the end of that. But I guess it just brought it right back to me. I described what happened when he died rather well in that little story. Um, This story is considered a companion story to the longer story so I'm glad I read it now before I read that one. So that means that in the longer story this is considered as has happened. So we have canon, that's what actually was on the air. And then we have kind of like story canon, I guess. This is the story that happened sometime before it. Just as the short stories I read for Final Fantasy, those two stories are companion stories to Momentous, the longer story that I'm not finished with yet. They don't have to be read with it, but they are meant to be the background as well as canon for that story as some of the stories that happened before are history to stories in Deep Space Nine. Some of them are not. I would say a Clever Plan is not part of the history of Osvianchim and all that, but I will say the canon-compatible parts of If It's Not One Thing are part of Osvianchim's history. Pain of Memory, Osweansham is part of that history, so that means if it's not one thing as well, and the same for faith, all those three part of that history. Um so healer first consideration, clever plan, welcome home, probably not part of that. But those longer stories are connected in that way. They share that history and the honored picks up the gidari that happened in if it's not one thing. So yeah, (laughs) you know, it's back there. Um, So this is, this is how I feel about this story. It will be referenced in the longer story. The longer story is called Close to Home, So Far Away from an Enya song. I was reading or listening to a lot of Enya as I wrote the story. Uh, So that happens (laughs) and you'll, Some of those songs will be in the story because Cordelia is listening to it. But, um, yeah, this was a... Just, you know, a one-scene little story, but I think I liked what Harry turned to him and pointed out that he deserved it. He'd had his life and and more, and Doyle didn't even get 30. I also like the... He wasn't bad, he just thought he was. That definitely played into Doyle's um, characterization at the time that we know him in the show. Well, that is it for this episode. That's four short stories. That only leaves one. It's a sequel to Valerie Shearer's uh, story, The Exile. Mine is called The Doctor. And it is a nice little short story, as is hers. Um, I hope to get in touch with her again so that we can um, record something together, maybe about how we write the same character, but do so so differently. Also, she writes draft after draft after draft, and I don't. <laughs> so we have differences. But um, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Um After this, that means that if I can find topics about writing to talk about, I will do so, but I will probably go on to reading more of the longer stories. These are going to be novellas, novels, and even a trilogy. So um, yeah, that's what's going to happen now. Um, I do have a writing group that meets every two weeks. And so maybe something comes in that writing group that makes me want to, um, discuss something with all of you, like, um, that literary device that I used on accident. Um, so we'll, we'll just see. But if, anyway, if you want to get in touch with me about either the zombies run story, the two deep space nine stories or the angel story go ahead and give me a ring or a tweet or an email, <laughs> rather. I'm at Inhildi and Inhildi at gmail.com. And Inhildi is I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. Um, when we, oh, we did meet Inhildi, didn't we? In pain of memory, Inhildi Tritsig. That's where I got it from. I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. I hope to hear from you. Good night.